people need to understand that the world has changed around us and all the assumptions we made are no longer true. And people need to buy into that, not only that narrative, but that fact set. There are no alternate facts here. That's the voice of Steve Blank. And if you're a startup faced with uncertainty because of COVID-19, then Steve is the perfect person to learn from. This is Mike Maples Jr. Floodgate, and it's go time with Steve Blank. Welcome to Starting Greatness, a podcast dedicated to ambitious founders who want to go from nothing to awesome super fast. When you're a startup founder, you have to channel your inner James Bond, your MacGyver, your Wonder Woman. I'm going to help you win by curating the lessons of the super performers, but before they were successful. So without further ado, ignition sequence start. Let's get started. Most startups face existential challenges ahead. And as one of the most important figures in teaching entrepreneurship, in this episode, Steve Blank offers real, honest advice about how to manage the unexpected obstacles you'll face on your journey. Since 1978, Steve has been in eight startups. He's led some to IPO. He's created some smoking craters. And through it all, he's navigated multiple ups and downs in tech, including the correction of the late 80s, the 2000s bubble burst, and the financial crisis in 2008. If you're determined to achieve greatness no matter what's on the horizon, if you decided that failure is not an option, this episode is for you. So Steve, welcome to the podcast. Well, uh, thanks for having me, Mike. I wish it was better circumstances. We're in the midst of interesting times, to put it mildly. So if you're a startup founder right now, what advice would you be giving them in terms of thinking about their current plan, just what action they need to take? Well, I think the equivalent about thinking about your current plan is to assume it was 66 million years ago and you see this big bright light in the sky and, and you're not a mammal, you're actually a, a dinosaur. And, you know, you could either go, oh, well, we've been the dominant species for the last 100 million years. Why me worry? And you're laughing hysterically, you know, like in the Far Side cartoon about these little things scurrying underneath, which are the little mammals. And the world to, around you is about to change dramatically. Um, you know, I, I hate to be a pessimist, but um, I've said this a month ago, and unfortunately it looks like mostly coming true, is that this is not a recession. It's a mass extinction event for um, a good number of businesses and industries. And it doesn't mean that there won't be a recovery. Of course there will. And it doesn't mean that things won't get funded that will grow huge in the middle of this, but all bets are off. And if you're not operating that way as a startup founder, you know, I don't know what planet you're on. But in crisis comes opportunity. And for founders who uh, and employees who fight the good fight, you know, there will be a morning after. The sun will come up and, you know, hopefully you and your families and your people around you will still have their health and will recover. And I also want to remind people, and Mike, you've lived through this, is some of the biggest brand names of startups we know were funded during the downturns that happened in, after 2000 and uh, after 2008. So there will be new types of businesses. And if it's not this one you're in, it will be the next one. Because if anything, great founders and great uh, early employees are incredibly resilient and, and we'll come out of, rise out of the ashes. So we will uh, do great things again. Maybe we should just uh, deconstruct a little bit of what has to change, right? Because on some level, 
I think we're saying that you should be zero-based and you're thinking about everything, right? Uh, none of your prior assumptions should be the, the go-forward assumptions necessarily. So maybe we start with, uh, with customers. How would you think about changing your you know, posture with customers in this, in this environment? Well, you know, the first step is um, you need to look around outside and then look around inside. So outside is you uh, need to take an assessment of how do you think the economy is doing in general? How do you think your particular customer segment and market is doing? How do you think their customers are doing? And kind of assess where do you think that's going to go? You know, with sequestering in place, it's kind of hard to physically call on customers. But, you know, customer discovery uh, is actually, in some cases, easier to do now because most people are actually uh, sitting at home or or, uh, not surrounded by admins and gatekeepers. And the questions I would ask now is uh, some very specific ones. You know, what were their needs and problem solution industry pre-COVID-19? And what's it like now? Have there been regulatory changes? Have their customers' behaviors changed? What do they think like? What do they think it's going to be when the recovery comes? When do they think it's going to become? Are they laying off people? And what do they think of your problem and solution, you know, last month? And what do they think of it now? And how do they prioritize it? You should be asking some pretty specific discovery questions, but not be thinking, oh, I can't get that data because, you know, I can't visit people. Zoom has now become the standard, you know, tool for watching people's pupils dilate because that's what you want to see is are they looking at their watch or are they like paying attention to what you have? And if if you were in the point of trying to validate minimum viable products, uh, you know, an MVP can be done uh, over Zoom within 90 percent of the effectiveness in person while they can't feel it. Um, if you break your MVP demo into less than one minute segments, you could actually make them as pre-canned videos so you could watch people's facial reactions as you play, you know, push play um, and you edit the video to illustrate each of your points. And this allows the customers to interrupt and ask questions. Yeah. And I think the other point, Steve, that, that I've been seeing is that, you know, on some level, customer development is about creating a unique solution for somebody who's desperate. and there's a bunch of people who have new types of desperation out there. They're listening at volume 11 to people yep. who can solve it. And, and and that's a great point, Mike, because if you're doing the right type of discovery, the things you normally would ask in, in discovery is, well, where does the problem and, and our solution fit in your top 10 things that you'd pay for? Now you just simply want to ask, what are the top five things your company is buying for survival and what are you not buying and paying for deferring and, and you want to make sure which list you're on and guess what they'll tell you because right now people are looking for tools to survive their own businesses and if you happen to have one of those great now you've found probably the best time for product market fit and if you're not on that list you know you need to know that as well like oh my gosh maybe we ought to pivot to one of those five things they've just told us about but the point is, is that you need to get a quick handle on how's your business and how's your customer's business fairly rapidly. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's interesting. Um, I mean, you and I both lived through uh, 2001, right? And for example, we had one company, one customer who owed us $15 million and we had our quarterly business review and they said, you guys are doing great. Uh, we've got a lot of value from your product. 
the only issue is we're just not going to pay you. And, and I'm like, well, what are you talking about? Right. We have a, we have a contract. Uh, there are no contingencies. You're not saying that we didn't deliver in, on anything. And they said, see that building next door, Mike, it's full of lawyers. How many, how many lawyers do you guys have at motive? And so that was part of what I found challenging was it was hard to get money into your company, not just from a fundraising point of view, but you couldn't even count on the business you'd already closed to, to materialize. And then, and then on top of that, how do you forecast your current sales cycle and your new customers? And so I remember just the uncertainty of that being really a challenge. And, and it works two ways because, uh, you know, we used to talk about expenses in companies as, as variable expenses like people or commission or whatever and fixed expenses like rent. Well, in these types of crisis, you now treat fixed expenses as a potential variable expense. You tell your landlord is like, I can't pay you the entire rent this month and I'll trade you equity or deferred payment or something else. So it, it goes multiple ways. I think the bottom line for a startup that doesn't have uh, cash flow positive is that um, getting uh, to some type of cash flow positive plan rapidly is their number one priority. And those who are generating revenue to generate profitability rapidly is is probably their number one priority. The world kind of turned upside down in the, the last decade or so, Mike, where, as you know, Startups kind of forgot about revenue and profits and, and went for, you know, blitzscaling, mm-hmm. which worked great until it didn't. And I think for a good number of companies, we're now in the it didn't part, and we need to figure out how to generate revenue and profit now. And the other thing about, um, you were talking about pulling commitments, and I know it's not your firm, but, um, you know, for other startups who were expecting, well, we hit milestone X, and then we get our, you know, series A or B. You know, I just want to remind those founders that those rules are gone as well. Regardless of the we're right behind you, uh, might have mattered last year or last month. It doesn't matter now until there's a check in the bank. As I said, every uh, venture capitalist is looking at their portfolio and figuring out who they have to support. Some of the VC funds might have raised tons of cash. Their most valuable uh, companies were the ones in the later stage who yeah. nowadays might be hemorrhaging a ton of cash. You know, yeah. Airbnb being a canonical example of, you know, great company, March 1st, world's worst company now, and not not because they were dumb, but because the, the entire environment has changed around them. But it means that they have to be supported by capital coming from places that might normally go to earlier stage investments. Yeah, it's funny you mention that, Steve, because um, I remember in 2001, and right, every every downturn is different. So there'll be different things about this time than, than that time. But one of the things that I remember being very surprised by as well was you had all these VC funds that had dry powder that had raised huge funds in the wake of 2000. As, as things were starting to go into a free fall mode, you talked yourself into believing, well, these guys have money anyway, and they have dry powder. And so if you're one of the good companies, it can't be that bad. What you're describing, I remember in a very vivid way, the first thing that I observed was that a lot of these funds started giving money back to their LPs. So that was yep. one observation. So they didn't have as much dry powder as we thought. The second thing is they used it to defend their companies, their current investments. The other thing that I noticed was that prices went through a reset period 
it, and I was very resentful of the VCs at the time about this, but it was, it was as if they were saying to us, look, we know your company's good. We know it's going to be valuable. The problem is the market hasn't flattened out and reset prices. And so even if you're the best startup in the world, I can own it for 30% less in three months. And so I'd be foolish to buy it now because I'm just backstopping you rather than waiting for valuations to normalize. And so that was a, a really frustrating time for me because you, you, you couldn't even reason with investors about a, a deal that could be done or a, a round that could happen. In 2000, after the initial meltdown of the NASDAQ, VCs were still writing checks. But in 2001, it felt like they were hiding under their desks. You know, I, wa- I want all your listeners to understand if you're a startup CEO, right now your survival equals three things. Your speed of understanding times the magnitude of pivots and cuts and lifeboat decisions you make times the speed of your time to make those changes, period. And, yep. and you notice the word speed <laughs> occurs yep. twice. You yep. can't sit around waiting for people to tell you what to do or else the circumstances are just going to overtake you. You'd rather like take excesses cuts now because you could all, if you're wrong, you could always hire back, but you can't get cash back right now if, if you sit around. As you said, it's not a, a something that's going to go away in the in the next three months. My bet, Mike, it's at least a year, if not a three-year impact on the economy and on the venture world. But if I was a CEO, I would just be assuming for most markets at least a year. And the best way to figure this out is, again, do some customer discovery. Your VP of sales might have been the world's most astute person on the 1st of March. They're even more clueless than you are now as the founder and CEO. And I, and I say that not to diss a VPs of sales, but you hired them because they were incredibly optimistic and and kept hard charging. Well, that doesn't work anymore. You really need some dispassionate facts and you need to dial through your customers with your VP of sales and try to validate what type of pipeline you have left, if any. And more importantly, try to assess how your customers are doing. But for founders and entrepreneurs, you know, this is a time to start thinking about new business models as well. So one is getting control of your company and your burn rate and your runway. Um, You know, I've been like telling companies I'm dealing with is if you don't have at least a year or two of cash, then you need to take some action now. And most startups, you know, you laugh when you say that because we used to be in a cash rich environment first of March. Typically, that's uh, figuring out how to cut salaries of everybody, including the C-level execs, because for every 25% you cut, you've saved, you know, one out of four employees. Um, and then um, figuring out how to, uh, you know, downsize if necessary and get rid of marketing expenses and other things you need to do and putting it all together. It's a lifeboat strategy. Just assume you're on a big ship, which is this economy and, and you know, your current company. And you hit an iceberg and it wasn't your fault, but, uh, you know, you hit it and the ship's going down and you got to go into a lifeboat. What do you put in it so you could survive and those closest to you can survive in your company? And what are the most important assets you want to make sure you take with you? What are the things you're going to save to save the core assets of your company so it gets to fight another day? And that includes figuring out if there's a different business model that you could be executing right now. You know, if you're a brick and mortar retail store, you don't have too many choices. But if you're an enterprise software company, there are choices you can make. And there's reconfiguration of both positioning and software. If you're 
selling uh, B2C, again, depends on, on how agile your team is and uh, what markets you're in. Uh, but there are choices one can make about business models. In terms of runway, what we're seeing is that the role of timing has just fundamentally changed, right? So in the last few years, the bargain that most startups made with the capital markets was, I have 18 months to show something compelling. And if I do, then I can raise more money. And so people planned their runway about how much can I accomplish and how much can I show in 18 months? And then the money will be there on the other side. What we're finding right now is that the only thing I'm certain about is that I'm uncertain. I see some people say it's going to be a V-shaped recovery. Some say a U-shaped, some say a W-shaped, some say an L-shaped, right? It's like it's going to take a decade to recover. I think anybody who says they know the answer is just wrong or like overly self-confident. And so my view of it is that when you have an uncertain situation, you have to take control of your runway. You have to own your runway and buy yourself 36 months if you can because otherwise you're you're counting on things that you can't control to help you pull through rather than things that you can own in terms of your own destiny. Completely agree, Mike. You said something earlier about this formula and you know I can't help but notice that a lot of the elements of that formula you described involve speed and it it takes me back to this notion of the OODA loop that Commander Boyd coined. And you know, usually when we describe the, the OODA loop, it's, it's as it applies to agility and building startups and customer development. But I think you're applying it perhaps here for how do you reorient your startup in a catastrophic change environment? Right. For, for your listeners, Mike, the OODA loop is, is the, the initials O-O-D-A, which stands for Observe, Orient, Decide, and Act. And it was a military tactic that an Air Force colonel, um, who was a fighter pilot, came up with that said, if I could observe, orient, decide, and act in my fighter plane faster than someone else who's trying to shoot me down, I could actually look like a blur to them and make decisions faster. And, and I think the same is true here. What I've been talking about is observing, that is, what's going on around you and inside your company orienting like, holy cow, this is the new normal. How long is this going to last? Okay, all hands on deck. No, it's not about making your expense budget. It's like dealing with what we got um, and what's our new, you know, new pivot, etc. That's decide and making those cuts and whatever we need to do and acting on it. So that's the OODA loop. And I think time and again, we've seen people who operate the fastest OODA loops and the fastest observe, orient, decide, and act are the ones who survive. And Steve, when you when you think about the what a lot of people are going to face, um, you get into this situation where you're the leader. The temptation and the momentum around you is very often don't act too quickly. You know, you're going to break something that we can't fix. We had all this investment in this in this initiative over here. You, you're going to ruin it. How would you advise people to kind of get their team into the right headspace of doing what's essential and sort of not having hope be a strategy for things coming back to yeah. how they work? Yeah. Not, not having hope not be a strategy is my favorite line, Mike. Um, and now it's more important than ever. You know, once you agree with your investors about what the external and internal environment looks like, that needs to be shared widely with your team. People need to understand that. Um, 
this is the end. It's not about the, you, CEO, or your company doing bad or whatever. The world has changed around us, and all the assumptions we made are no longer true. And people need to buy into that, not only that narrative, but that fact set. There are no alternate facts here. There will always be a couple of people who go, yeah, but that doesn't apply to me. To be honest, Mike, I normally wouldn't suggest this, but uh, this is the time a CEO needs to act, excuse the language, like, like a dick. Those need to be ex-employees, like immediately. Um, and, and I don't mean that you need to act badly, but you do need to act ruthlessly. You need to signal to everybody, we're either all aligned here, and remember that collaborative uh, organization we had at 1st of March? It's now a benign dictatorship. Um, yeah. And the benign part is because I'm trying to keep us all paid and our company afloat. And the dictatorship is we're all either going to buy into here's what we're doing, or you could find a job elsewhere, see if, see if you could find one. And they might, and it's great. But that you don't want people like not along for the game here because that's what it's going to take. And I don't mean be nasty about it. I don't mean without thinking and without being clear, but I think everybody ought to understand guys, this is the plan. This is what we're going to do. And this is why we're doing it. And this goes back to something else that startup founders uh, historically aren't great at and now need to become expert at, and that's communication. And by communication, uh, I just mean a, uh, some very specific things right now. What is, as you're assessing what's going on outside and inside, that's a C-level activity. And you need to do that quickly within a day or two with your C-level execs. And then you need to com communicate quickly to your investors. Here's what we see. Here's what, you know, our internal assessment of cash, burn rate, et cetera, um, we just want to check in with you and, and tell you what we see. So number one is quickly assess and communicate like there's no tomorrow with your investors. Then the next part of communication is you want to tell the rest of your company, it's all hands on deck. You know, we're thinking about how to survive. We need ideas from all of you. Not yep. here's the layoffs, not here's whatever. We're looking for new business models. We're looking for ways to cut costs. We're looking for whatever. Here's, you know, here's in general what we see. And I would communicate for three to five days. Let us know your best ideas. In the meantime, iterate your plan internally. And then again, communicate with your investors. Okay, given our last call, let me remind you what we saw about the external and internal environment. Here's what we come, have come up with collectively as a corporate plan for what we're going to go do. Just checking in. And while you want to do this with your investors, they are seeing more than your company. They're seeing across their portfolio. And maybe there are great ideas that you haven't even thought of. Or and at minimum, you want to vet some of the actions you're going to take, which are their investments the, to make sure you're in sync with them. And then you want to communicate to your company, here's what we're going to do. And in, a, in most cases, some of it is pretty tough decisions like layoffs. You don't want to slice the salami like 2% at a time. Right. Because if you don't lay off everybody you need to at one time, thinking that maybe next week it'll be better, you actually destroy morale and more importantly, productivity of the entire company because people will be looking over their shoulders. What you yeah. want to do is let people know that you're going to cut once and this is it. 
we're either like going to make it with this or we're out of effing business, but we're not cutting again. And if you think about it, that is a um, commitment to the company that you're in it, they're in it, and we're going to pull together to get out of this. And I would communicate on a regular basis. Here's what we're seeing. Here's our markets. Here's whatever. People need reassurance from leadership that you may not know exactly what you're doing, but here's but here's the action you're taking. Here's the plans you're moving. We're, we're willing to listen to other ideas, et cetera. It's a different form of communication that occurred normally when the trajectory was, you know, up and to the right. And the other thing I've seen is you want to communicate daily, but you don't want to make promises with happy talk about stuff you can't yep. control. You don't want to say, okay, we cut salaries. This is when we expect they're, they're going to come back or, you know, this is when we expect that we're going to raise more money, all that kind of stuff, because you just don't know. And so the, the probability that you're going to make even a, an unintended commitment or that's perceived as one by the team is pretty high. How do you take decisive action while acting with compassion, right? Because this is, this is going to be really hard. Uh, and, and there's going to be people that you recruited to this company, you told them how great it was going to be, why they should leave their current company, why this everything's going to be awesome. And now you have to turn around and let them go. What have you learned about just handling this with compassion? Yeah, so um, I, I, I've seen this um, multiple times. And, you know, the, the simplest way is sometimes almost the wrong way is, okay, let's just do the math and lay off whatever we need to lay off to get down to the burn rate and cash and, and runway number we need. Well, the next level up is no, the execs need to take a haircut before you take anybody else for a haircut because we're either in this together or not. And again, there's no law that says you do that, but it certainly builds solidarity. And the next level up is, well, before we just lay off everybody, maybe we all ought to take pay cuts with the C-level execs taking deeper ones. Then the yeah. third level down is, well, wait a minute, you know, getting rid of the janitor, like who probably is living month to month, is not the same as getting rid of a Stanford grad with a master's degree in computer science who's going to have a job uh, mm-hmm. versus someone else who's probably supporting a family on, you know, an hourly wage. So you might want to also be thinking about is how do we protect the vulnerable? Some of us, you know, I don't, haven't gotten haircuts, and as you could tell, for, or maybe fancy <laughs> for, for the last month or two, but I'm still paying the woman who cuts my hair. We're lucky enough to have a house cleaner, but she's not, we don't have her coming in now, but we're still paying her. And you could decide to do that both in your personal and professional lives about if you have that capital is, you know, is protecting the very vulnerable, the difference between life and death of your company. And if it's not, if it's within the soda budget, I would also be thinking of that. I'd be thinking about how do I eliminate the free food before I eliminate the hourly workers' salaries? And here's the bad news for early stage founders. If if you've never done this before, and, and, you know, you probably haven't been through a crisis like this, there are no rules and there are no role models. So you look to your investors and your peers for what is the right ethical thing to do. If you're going to go down, you might as well go down with people remembering uh, how well you treated them. And what's, uh, what, what's, what's bad about that is 90% of them won't remember. I can't tell you how many times I did these things and you know people still screwed me over years later. But there are 10% who will remember the rest of your career. 
Anything else you think we should be covering here, Steve? There is one other thing I'd like to just mention to your audience, Mike, if I can. In a crisis, um, and and this I've gone through, and and, uh, for those of you who've been through either personal or professional or corporate crises, it's almost always an opportunity for reflection, and the outcome sometimes could be a more meaningful life. You know, while we're talking about heads down, hard charging, got to pivot, got to fix, got to cut, it might be you're thinking about, like, if you're an employee or even if you're a founder, this my job feels pretty meaningless in the big picture of what matters. Maybe you're no longer sure that your current career path is what you want to do and how do you figure it out. And what's really interesting is if you're still in school or you're early in your career, Everybody thought that we're going to graduate or work in a strong economy and the investors were throwing money at great ideas and the road was plenty of opportunities. Well, you know, we'll argue about how long that world has gone for. It's certainly gone for a year in my mind, if not longer. And unemployment is going to hit 15 percent and lights are going off in companies and we probably won't see them back on for a while and industries won't be the same. But uh, as I said, Every crisis brings an opportunity. And in this case, it's to reassess your life and ask, you know, how do I want to use my time when the world recovers? You might want to think about how to make people's lives healthier or longer or live more productive lives. If you're coming out of school or you're early in your career, you have an edge. You have more flexibility to reevaluate your trajectory. You could consider alternate jobs like in medical research or joining a startup in therapeutics or diagnostics or medical devices or digital health or become an EMT or a doctor or a nurse, or consider the impact remote learning has had on the pandemic. How can you make it better and more effective? And what are ways you could help to strengthen organizations that help those less able and fortunate? And and it's pretty easy, even if you're not in any of these domains, to figure out, how do I start? Well, you start by just using customer discovery to search for new careers. Do some reading and research and look to the leading publications in a field you're interested in. Um, You know, news sources like TechCrunch and Hacker News don't follow uh, life sciences. And there are different publications and different things to read. On my blog, steveblank.com, I've kind of listed some of those uh, for life sciences and for uh, ed tech and for uh, some of the others. Um, You know, but my advice, you know, to all these people ask me is now's the time for carpe diem, which has seized the day. You know, now's the time to ask, is my work relevant? Am I really living the life I really want? Does the pandemic change the weighting of what's important? All right, Steve. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Starting Greatness. You can follow me on Twitter at M2JR. And please shoot me an email with any comments or questions to greatness at floodgate.com. I hope you'll subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, I'd be grateful if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Never let go of your inner power to do great things in whatever matters to you. And until we meet again, remember, greatness is a decision.